Welcome to the Brew Crew Review Podcast, the show by fans for fans of your Milwaukee Brewers. Welcome to another edition of the Brew Crew Review Podcast. This is Vince Travato. I am joined here on the set with Scott Bartell and Chris hey. Antow. And hey, guys, how's it going? Great. Awesome. Excellent. And we're also joined here on the set with a very special guest today, former Milwaukee Brewers pitcher Larry Sorensen. Larry, how are you doing today? Doing terrific. Thanks. I appreciate the invitation to join you guys. Yeah, absolutely an honor to have you. I know that a lot of Brewer fans are going to be very excited to to hear from you, and uh, we'll just get right into it. Um, you played your college baseball at the University of Michigan and were drafted by the Brewers in the eighth round in 1976. Could you tell us a bit more about your draft day experience and what it was like signing your first professional contract? Well, it really was kind of a surprise to me because uh, the California Angels had told me that I wouldn't get past them in the fifth round, and uh, they were going to take me, and they'd had me down to Tiger Stadium. Uh, I lived just outside of Detroit, went to the University of Michigan, as you said, and so it really was kind of a surprise that it was Milwaukee. But uh, as it turned out, I talked, my first minor league coach was a guy that had scouted me, Tony Roig, and he told me where he'd see me and everything. So I was just so happy to play. It took me about 20 minutes to sign. I held out for about 20 minutes and $2,000, and I just wanted to play, was ready to go. <laughs> you got the extra 2000 though. <laughs> that's, that's good. Well, and enough, to, and enough to pay for my college, for my last year of college to go back. So it worked out. That's great. Awesome. And then um, you had obviously uh, you were you were definitely fast tracked. You only played a, a handful of minor league games before making your uh, debut. Um, what was your time like uh, briefly in the minors? And did you think you were being rushed to the majors at all? Or were you pretty happy with how things were going? Well, in my mind, I was ready to go to the major leagues from college. They just didn't see it that way. You know, <laughs> that was the big difference. But, uh, you know, really, guys, I was in the right place at the right time the entire time that I was in Milwaukee. And uh, I started out with the Newark co-pilots, which Robin Yount had just left. And so they kind of had the experience of rushing a kid through. And I was a pitcher that threw strikes. I was 20 years old. And I knew my fundamentals because Michigan was very big on fundamentals. Our coach had been a minor league player for the Tigers. But the real big break of my career was the Hall of Fame game in Cooperstown because the Brewers were playing the Mets that year in the Hall of Fame game. And obviously, they didn't want to waste one of their pitchers on an off day. So they, called, they wanted to call somebody up. And the Brewers, as you might also recall, were just a little bit cheap back in those days. And so they figured they could reach out to me 60 <laughs> miles away from Cooperstown in Newark, New York, and have me come over to pitch. And I went seven innings against the Mets, and they sent me to double-A two days after that. Oh, wow. Quite an impression then. <laughs> <laughs> well, I had seven good innings in a really small ballpark, got to pitch to Willie Mays, uh, gave up a base hit to Willie Mays, which is still a highlight of my career. And, wow. Uh, wow. Yeah. You know, I, I threw fastballs right down the middle because even then I was smart enough to figure out that people really hadn't come to watch Larry Sorensen pitch that day. <laughs> Larry, for, Larry, for what it's worth, I, I think he probably could have hit the curveball as well. <laughs> he could hit just about anything. That's true. <laughs> um, well, speaking of highlights, one one thing we definitely want to talk about with you is your major league debut. So, going back to June seventh, nineteen seventy seven, and you're twenty one years old at the time. 
And if I'm remembering correctly, it's kind of one of those mid to late, or, you know, like 76, 77, sometimes County Stadium, you know, there's about 9,000 people there. Um, I don't think they knew what they were witnessing, um, that, you know, you're going to go on and, and, you know, and have some good years with the Brewers. So you're 21 years old. So, so tell us what that debut was like. You know, it, it really is everything that you hope it will be. It was family from all over the place coming in, you know, from Florida, from Michigan, friends coming from all over the place, uh, and a lot of excitement around that. They called me up, uh, I think, two days beforehand so that I could be there for a day. I remember that the one of the things I distinctly remember when I look at the pictures still think about is I didn't have the right color shoes because we were wearing black and you needed blue shoes, and I didn't want to have a pair that uh, hadn't been broken in, so I had Sal Bando's shoes. And uh, I'll never forget. <laughs> and as you might imagine, Sal kind of had some wide feet. So, <laughs> so I got a little bit of a blister sliding around in Sal's shoes that night, but it was worth it. And it was just the thrill of a lifetime and, and truly everything that you hope it will be uh, that particular night, except for the fact that I didn't get a win. Wow. That, 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 that's really awesome. And, so, you know, you come up and, you know, your first month is a, l- a little rough on some of the numbers, but then you really buckle down and, and your numbers look great for the rest of the year. And, of course, the next season, your your numbers are outstanding and, and for the duration of your time in Milwaukee. What what do you kind of attribute that success to after your first month of, uh, of your career? Well, a couple of things. Number one, Cal McClish was our pitching coach. And if you remember, he was just the kindest, gentlest soul with an awful lot of wisdom and one of the best curveballs baseball's ever seen. And he really was a major, major help in my development. As you said, I was just a young kid and uh, was just learning at the major league level. You know, my teammates called me up and they said, guess what? We're playing South Carolina in the regionals next week. And I said, yeah, guess what? I'm pitching against the Orioles. You know, that's how quickly <laughs> that whole thing happened. But Cal, Cal was great. And he was one of the few coaches, I think he and uh, Frank Howard were the coaches that were retained from the staff when they fired everybody. And they fired the general manager, brought in George Bamberger, and uh, Harry Dalton took over the reins, brought in some free agents. Uh, Larry Heisel came along, and he brought up some young guys. And it was just a different club. The composition of the club was different. We became Bambi's Bombers very quickly because they could score lots of runs in a hurry. And, you know, terrific defense brought Molitor up, and, and so many good things happened. I think it was more a uh, it was more the fact that the team improved so much than anything I really did to improve the team. Well, there was definitely a, a lot of turnover there then. And I, I guess uh, coming in with the, the new regime with, I guess, with uh, Harry Dalton and George Bamberger, uh, what was it like to play under George? Um, and uh, were there any other people, I guess, um, in, that, in your first year that really kind of, um, help bring you along? Well, I mentioned Cal, and he was so great. You know, he was a Native American from uh, Oklahoma, and he wouldn't say crap if he had a mouth full of it, you know? And then George <laughs> came in, and George was from Staten Island, and George couldn't go a whole sentence without using three F-bombs. So it was just kind of <laughs> completely two completely different points of view, but their knowledge of pitching was so great that once it got into my head somehow, it made sense, you know. And, and it, I might not understand the way George said it one time, 
but I understood the way uh, that Cal said it. And then the next time I might not understand Cal's way, but I understood George's way. And then they brought Mike Caldwell in, who taught, who taught me about competing, really competing. And, uh, and so he was a huge help. And, uh, you know, Jim Slayton was around and guys like that that were just a big help. Sal Bando. I used to think that experience was just another word for old age until I played with Sal and realized exactly how much knowing what you're doing could help you out. And, and he was one of the first big free agent signings that the Brewers had made, if I remember correctly. I, I like in franchise history at that point. Yeah, and, and I was, uh, he was the first guy that I faced in spring training. After they sent me to double-A, they sent me to instructional ball in the fall. So I'd gone from college to rookie ball to double-A to instructional ball. And then the following spring training, I went to big league camp and one of, was one of the last pitchers cut. And Cal McClish said to me when they were sending me down, he said, you go pitch 75 innings and you're going to be right back up here. And I went like 73 and a third or something and got called up. So, and they brought Sal in, but I remember he was, Sal was the first hitter that I faced in spring training when you went live. And I'm thinking to myself, this is a seven million, a seven figure guy. And I'm facing him. If I break his hand, I'll never see double A again. (laughs) I was having trouble keeping the ball in the cage because I was so scared. Wow. That's great. You know, it, it turned out Sal is just as nice a guy as you'll ever want to meet, and obviously a tremendously smart baseball man. They didn't call him Captain Sal for you know for no reason, and obviously his general manager duties and everything else. And and that's when I really started learning that if you if you keep quiet a little bit and pay attention to what these guys are saying that have been around you really can pick up a lot of baseball and started listening to guys and talking about the way they play the game. Yeah, and another guy um, that going back to that history that that you pitched against that was another big, you know, the next big free agent signing, you pitched against Larry Heisel that, that first summer. And then, you know, a few months later, he's your teammate. Yeah, and, and Larry, as anybody that's ever met him, will tell you is just about the greatest teammate anybody's had on any team, any place, any time. Just a tremendous gentleman and a wonderful teammate and a tremendous player as well. You know, had he not had the injuries that he had, there's no telling what his career could have been. But when he tore up his shoulder, uh, everything kind of started to slide on him a little bit. But just a wonderful, wonderful person, uh, funny man to be around, quiet as could be, but when you made him laugh, it made uh, everything worthwhile because he was a great teammate. You know, one other guy I'd like to mention real quick, too, is Bill Castro, because Bill Castro was in Milwaukee for a lot of years as their pitching coach, and I really learned yep. a lot from him. And uh, in spring training especially, my first spring training, I was in a, in, a, uh, in a motel, and they kept a lot of guys, and they kept guys in different places, and I was in the motel. And, and Castro, for a long time, and still is a very good friend, and uh, – and a guy that I learned a lot of baseball from. So when when you debuted, you did so on a 1977 team that was, you know, finished 67 and 95, finished in sixth place in the division. Uh, the next year, the team is a contender and goes 93 and 69. What, you know, what what do you think caused that massive jump in win totals for those two teams? Well, besides the difference in players, I think it was a difference in attitude. And Harry Dalton came in and he started talking right away about doing things the Baltimore way. And Baltimore had been so good for so long. And there were a lot of young players on that team. And there were some successful players on the team too. And they knew what it took 
to play winning baseball. And again, Sal is, is a big part of that. And uh, I think that they just convinced us we could win. And, and George was just so doggone positive all the time, you know, and uh, he just always made you feel like a million bucks about yourself and always made you believe in yourself and uh, was very positive. And we had a lot of guys had terrific years, career years. I had a career year. And um, it was, it was just, it was fun to watch the state get behind us, not just the city, but the whole state got behind us. You know, when people come down and they're tailgating in the parking lot three hours before the games, <laughs> you know, the people are serious about their baseball and some other things too, but serious about baseball. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Um, and, and really, I mean, success came to you pretty quick. I mean, you were an all-star basically in your first full season in 78. What was it like to, to be an all-star? I think you were 22 at the time. Ridiculous. <laughs> you know, you, you just can't believe that it's happened to you and you walk in and, and you see Rod Carew and you see George Brett and you see you walk in with your teammates, Don Money and Larry Heisel and, and Frank Tanana, who was a Detroit guy. So I knew him from Detroit a little bit. Uh, it was pretty intimidating, pretty awesome. Didn't really think I'd get into the game, but, um, you know, things worked out that way. And it was just the entire weekend, the entire uh, all-star experience. And Euchre was there, too. You know, so Uke was kind of keeping an eye on me and uh, making sure I stayed out of trouble a little bit. <laughs> he's, he's always around. <laughs> yeah, as much as he ever makes anybody stay out of trouble, that's, uh, that was what he did. <laughs> um, you had, obviously, you know, a, a good time, I would like to think, in Milwaukee those years, and especially 78. But is there one – on the field memory of your time in Milwaukee that really stands out? Oh man, you know, there's, there's been an awful, there are an awful lot of them that were really, really special memories. Um, uh, I just saw a note the other day about an 18 to one whipping we put on the Red Sox in a game that I pitched and we had a bunch of grand slams and we just, you know, we were a group of guys that really got along. We had some young players, but like I said, with Molitor and Young, we were all about the same age. And so there were a lot of me fond memories of that. Um, just a lot of a lot of times when you couldn't believe that you were really sitting there, you know, and you had to pinch yourself a little bit that you were even sitting there. But I've got a picture of my parents, and I think the first game, it, well, I know it was the first game, but my parents and my brother and my sister were there and uh, their families, and we were all took a picture by the by the rail, and I think John Beaver took the picture. And uh, I've still got that one. So the first game is definitely a pretty big thrill. Well, and, 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 you know, we talked a little bit on the phone a few days ago, Larry, but what's your kind of your sense or your favorite memory of your off the field time in Milwaukee? Uh, just, you know, maybe your interactions with the community or anything of that nature. Well, several things popped to mind real quick. And uh, the first one is that I had a sandwich named after me at Saz. <laughs> nice. <laughs> yeah, <That's awesome. laughs> it was a pork chop sandwich, and the, and the caption under it said, "Larry never balked at." <laughs> and Saz and I, Saz and I became very, very good friends throughout the year. And he would send me sauce. He would send his special sauce to me at different stops I made uh, for years <laughs> after that, um, because and, my my ex wife talked him into that. And then the other thing that I really remember about off the field, besides a lot of the good times and out and about meeting with people. And, and this is another Euchre story. 
Euchre came in one day and he said, Larry, congratulations. And I thought, you know, I was going pretty good at the time. And I thought I maybe had won the player of the week or who knew what, but he said, congratulations. And I said, thanks man, for what? And he said, well, you've just been named honorary chairman of the Wisconsin uh, Cystic Fibrosis Foundation. And I said, I have really. And he said, yeah, he said, I just quit and you were just named. And I said, well, I guess, thank you very much. And so he just told him I'd do it. And I did. And it led to so, you know, I went up to Madison and went through the, the uh, hospital, the great hospital that they had up there and watched the kids that have that disease and what they go through. And so I really got into working with the Cystic Fibrosis Foundation for the years that I was there. And then even in, after that in Cleveland, Burt Blylevin and I had the Cystic Fibrosis uh, 65 Roses Club that they started. And it gave, gave me a chance to get out in the community with a group of people that were trying to beat an insidious disease and work with, especially working with kids and some of the good things that they did to uh, help try to find a cure for that. Wow. That's awesome. Yeah. Um, that is awesome. Part of, um, after you spent your time in Milwaukee, uh, you were then uh, eventually traded to uh, St. Louis, another uh, barbecue uh, area that's maybe not quite as good <laughs> as Saz is, but um, <laughs> what was it like when you were, um, when you were traded and um, how did you find out and how, how did you go through all of that? Well, actually, it was during the winter meetings and we were at uh, Mike Caldwell's house in Raleigh, North Carolina, and we were sitting in the hot tub and the phone rang and, and they said, uh, it was a reporter saying, have you heard about the deal? And so I found out from the media. And then got a call pretty quickly after that from uh, from Harry and and then from Whitey and and everything kind of fell together and you you get very sad you know because I'd grown up in the Brewers organization and really felt really felt like we were on the verge of something tremendous and didn't know all that much about the National League because I'd grown up in an American League city in Detroit and so I didn't know that much about uh, the different the different side of baseball. But you look at it as a great opportunity and a thrill. And I knew that I knew Whitey from uh, Kansas City, so I knew that it would be exciting baseball that we'd be playing. And I just looked at it as a great opportunity to go out and, and see some other places and, and learn a lot more about baseball. So kind of kind of jumping off of that and moving on, you you continued to play all the way through into the 1988 season. So what are some of the other favorite memories you had after after you left the Brewers organization during the rest of your career? Well, you know, one more Brewer memory before we get off that. I had a I had a no hitter going into the eighth inning at Yankee Stadium, and you know, whenever you can take a shot at a fellow teammate, you like to do that. And I remember that uh, <laughs> Sal came in in the eighth inning, and he and Reggie was coming up, and Sal said, "Larry, you know that he loves this kind of situation." And that was all that he said, you know, and he said, so be careful. And, and it just kind of put a thought in my head and I ended up walking Reggie. And then uh, a couple batters later gave up a single. And so, you know, I keep telling Sal that he blew the no hitter for me by putting bad thoughts in my head. But uh, that was, that was a pretty special thrill. Um, I've got another one. I've got a picture on my wall at home of, uh, of me sliding into home plate, scoring my first run. And it was in St. Louis. It was the second game of the season. It was about 90 degrees in St. Louis. And, you know, you could see the heat shimmering off the field. Even early in the season, it was particularly hot. So with two outs, I hit a ball. I struck out on three pitches, my first at-bat. And the first pitch 
went by me and I looked at Bob Boone and I said, they throw hard in this league. <laughs> and, and, and he said, well, you throw like that. I said, I don't throw like that. I know I don't throw like that. But the second at bat, I got a base hit off Larry Christensen. And I'm at first base and I'm an American League guy. So naturally I call for a jacket because it's only 90 degrees, you know. So I got to have a jacket. <laughs> and they bring that out to me. And Gary Templeton's the next hitter. And he hits the ball off the wall in right center field. So I've got this picture at home. And I, my steps got messed up rounding third. And the piano descended on my back about halfway down the third baseline. But I still <laughs> made it. I still made it. But my steps were messed up. And I started my slide late. And I had to reach backwards to touch home plate because I slid by it. And the photographer caught the picture, and Gary Templeton is standing at third base taking his gloves off his hand because he was already at third by the time that I was starting my slide and everything else. So he was watching the play just like everybody else. So I was a terrible hitter. I went eight years without swinging the bat. Uh, but Whitey told me that the only way he could keep me in the game was if I learned how to bunt. He said, if I can keep you in the game, I can pay you that way. He said, if I can't keep you in the game, it's going to cost you money. And it made sense to me, so I learned how to bunt. Hal Lanier used to take me out to center field and make me bunt about twice a week in spring training and learned how to do that. Oh. And after that, there were, just, there were a lot of great memories. We had a terrific team that year in St. Louis. Um, that was the split season when they had the champions of each half. And unfortunately, we had the best overall record, but we didn't have the best half of either, of either side. And so we didn't make the playoffs that year. And then I subsequently got traded to Cleveland after that. Right. So getting, getting back to your pitching a little bit, you ended your career with an incredibly low walk rate of two walks per nine innings pitched. How did you maintain such great control throughout your career? Well, it's funny because uh, I'm working with a product now that gives you all the metrics that, uh, that go into um, the pitching delivery and everything else now. And I was at a, a, a place yesterday. I was at an academy yesterday. And, and I always ask the kids, I say, what do you think is the best pitch in baseball? And you get from fastball, slider, curve, all the way down the gamut. I think kids make up pitches. And I said, strike one is the best pitch in baseball. And that was my whole theory on pitching. And I think that was Cal. Cal was a big believer in getting ahead of the hitter. And so I always tried to throw strike one. Now, I had a pretty good sinker. And I had a slider that I could throw for strikes when I wanted to. And so this sounds simplistic. But I tried to throw the ball right down the middle of the plate because I knew it was never going to end up there. Because I knew it was either going to be a slider away or my natural sinking motion was going to make it run in away from that spot. So I tried to keep the ball mid-thigh, middle of the plate when I started it out, knowing that I was going to get it to a corner one way or another. And you get ahead of hitters, and they say that the batting average difference is about 186 points if you go strike one instead of ball one and follow through the count. And that just seemed to make sense to me. So I always tried to go strike one on every hitter. That makes perfect sense. And actually, the, the way that you describe your pitching is a lot like how my bowling is, unfortunately. So I just try to bowl it down the middle, but it never ends up there. Um, but um, there oh, you I just got to repeat that, the Scott, delivery. I, yeah. I, I've, seen you bowl, I've seen you bowl, Scott. I don't think you've got much hope. But. <laughs> Well, um, I wanted to touch base a little bit and see um, uh, if you could tell us a little bit more about your, um, your career now, post-playing days, um, what you're doing now. 
Well, it, uh, you know, I had gone to Michigan and I knew that I was going to want to be about sports and you probably haven't noticed it yet, but I like to talk a little bit. <laughs> and so, and so I went to Michigan as a speech major and a journalism minor because I'd been sports editor of the newspaper and the yearbook in high school. And I really wanted to continue in that field, but I had a scholarship to Michigan and it all worked out so well. And so I worked, if you remember at WTMJ in the off season, when I first started, I used to do the sports on Saturday and Sunday night in the off season, just had a tremendous opportunity to jump right in and learn the craft a little bit better. And I always tried to make sure that I had a microphone in my hands whenever we went on the caravans to all the different cities in Wisconsin and every small town and everything else. I didn't want to just sit at a table. So right after I retired, I started working for Sports Channel Ohio for about a half a season, a half a summer, and got a little experience there. And then um, I started doing the College World Series for uh, ESPN in 1990, and I got put onto their major league schedule in 1991. So I was doing two major league games a week and the College World Series, and the broadcast career started going. And then um, the Detroit Tiger job became open. And I had been doing an all-sports talk show in, in Detroit, and the Detroit Tiger job became open, and I did that for four years. And then life got a little bit rough for me. I had some troubles with life, and uh, I'm an alcoholic, and it cost me dearly during the course of my career and post-career. But fought through that. I spent three and a half years in prison because of my alcoholism and drunk driving offenses. Never hurt anybody, never killed anybody. But uh, I spent some time in prison because of that and have come out of it and uh, have turned things around. And now I broadcast games for Wake Forest University. I've, I've been doing baseball for six years and uh, have been doing football. They switched me over to the football side as well. You may, have, uh, you may have read about that. They had a problem with their broadcaster down here. They called it Wakey Leaks <laughs> at the time. And... Uh, and they let a broadcaster go, and they hired me. And so I've been doing that, and I've been working on a project with, uh, with a baseball where a fella discovered a way to put a computer chip inside the baseball that gives you all the different metrics that the professional teams and the college teams and some of the high school teams and soon the kids will be using to, uh, to evaluate their pitching and to gain consistency and to figure out how to be better pitchers and to be safer with the amount of throws they make and how they do it. Larry, could you could you give our, our listeners some information on that and the website so that we can we can share that as well? Well, I appreciate it and, and I'd love to. It's called PitchLogic, P-I-T-C-H-L-O-G-I-C dot com is the website, and it's by F5 Sports. So either one of those will get you to our website. And it shows you uh, exactly how you can use it, what metrics come out of it. And we've all heard about spin rate. Well, our company has devised a third type of spin rate. So we have backspin, side spin, and rifle spin that give you total spin. And it's new and it's innovative and it's inside the baseball. So you don't have to have the cameras. You don't have to have uh, the different video things to calculate the numbers. It's actually inside the baseball with sensors inside and a battery charger. Uh, you just put it on a little battery charger for an hour and you get about three hours use out of it. And uh, there's 11 metrics right now, but we've got 29 inside it that we'll be gradually releasing as the year goes on. Uh, all made in the USA. We get the leather from a place in Tennessee, major league quality leather. Um, the, the graphic, the everything that's inside of it is from the United States, and then we uh, hand sew them together here in the U.S. So 
it's a, it's a USA made product, which we're proud of. And uh, we just put it on the market about 10 days ago. Hey, that's great. And we'll be, we'll make sure to uh, send a link out on Twitter as well. Well, appreciate that. It's uh, it's, it's a lot of fun. Wake Forest was at the forefront of, of this kind of innovation. They've got a pitching laboratory. The colleges are very into it, and uh, the major leagues are using all kinds of stuff. And we've got our balls in their hands, and they're starting to throw them as well and getting a lot of good data. It'll have some rehabilitation functions. It, uh, for young kids, it'll start baselines for numbers they'll be using down the road, and it's going to be a really exciting product. It sounds uh, really, really incredible, really innovative, and it sounds like between that and the announcing, that's keeping you very busy. Well, I uh, actually am living in South Florida, but I commute to Winston-Salem, and uh, I broadcast the Wake Forest University baseball games on the ACC Network Extra. So for anybody up in Wisconsin that might want to watch a ACC conference game, you can tune that in this Thursday, Friday, and Saturday. We've got NC State, as a matter of fact, who's got a terrific college baseball team, and that should be a lot of fun. One thing we definitely want to ask you, these days, you know, even though you're very busy with that stuff, um, do you still watch the Brewers? And if so, how do you think they're going to finish this year? <laughs> well, I still watch baseball all across the board, and Milwaukee's got an exciting team. They can, they can beat you a number of different ways. I think they're going to have a terrific season. I think it's way too early to start making predictions. Ask me about September 25th how they're going to do it. I'll give you a better idea. How does that work? Am I too far out on the limb with that one? That, uh... <laughs> that sounds fair so I think Milwaukee's going to have a great year. You know, they seem, they seem to just keep finding ways to do it, and uh, they're doing a lot of fun things. I still stay in touch with Mike Caldwell and, and he gets back up there pretty frequently and, and tells me the fans are still into it and it's still fun being around town. You know, it's that small city uh, uh, feeling of the big town and small city and, and the feeling of everybody knowing you and being your friend, and uh, those things just never seem to change. We're joined again on the set by our very special guest, Larry Sorensen, former Milwaukee Brewers pitcher. Larry, welcome to the uh, second half of our program where we go around the horn in our Rapid 9 segment and ask you uh, nine different baseball-related questions. There's no right or wrong answers. And um, we say it's rapid, but really you can you can take your time and, and, and go as slowly or as quickly as you'd like to on these. It's our anonymous source, Tom Carter's favorite segment as well. Well, it sounds like um, the pressure's on more than it was pitching against the Yankees. <laughs> we, we won't we won't ask Sal Bando for his advice on this one, though. <laughs> okay, good deal. <laughs> all, right, all right, so let's uh, let's lead off. Larry, who was your favorite baseball player growing up? Al Kaline, uh, no question. Al Kaline. I was a Detroit Tiger fan, and still one of the great moments of my life. And I'll never forget it, and I'm very rarely speechless, but I was standing by the batting cage, and I felt this tap on my shoulder, and I turned around, and a gentleman said, hi, Larry, I'm Al Kaline, and nothing came out. <laughs> nothing came out. I was totally sometimes, but uh, he was my favorite player when I was a kid. Oh, that's awesome. All right, question two. Um, what is your favorite food to have at a baseball game and your favorite um, restaurant food as a player while you were traveling the, the country? A hot dog with just mustard is my favorite, unless I'm in Milwaukee, and then I have a brat with a special sauce. And I used to time my road trips around 
having three of them each game when I came in to be a broadcaster. <laughs> I figured awesome. I could have one in the third, the fifth, and the seventh was kind of my pattern. <laughs> and then when we were traveling, I've, I've always been a rib fan. And so spare ribs, uh, barbecue ribs are my, are my test food. They're my litmus test for every restaurant, new restaurant that I go into. If it's a place I think I might want to come back, I eat the ribs first. And if the ribs are good, I'll take a second shot at it. <laughs> we, we should have thrown out before we started here on the second half that Scott is a ballpark food connoisseur, so he is our litmus <laughs> test uh, for our show. I'm not a foodie. I'm just a fatty. <laughs> All right. Well, well, on that note, we'll jump to the third inning here. Um, Larry, how many, how many Larry Sorensen baseball cards do you own, and do you have a favorite? Well, I, uh, I get boxes of them. I, I, I've got boxes of them because, you know, fans send them in, and everybody sends extras, and it's great. And I do. If people track me down, my theory is if somebody takes, down, takes the time to track down a guy that was just a run-of-the-mill, ordinary player like myself, then I owe it to them to sign the card and send it back. But people are very generous about if they've got four or five cards, they'll say keep a couple. And I do because I like to pass them out different places. A friend of mine started a scholarship program, and the way he started it was by giving kids bubblegum cards that were signed, baseball cards that were signed. As far as the favorites, um, you know, there's some Brewer cards with the wild hair that I get a lot of grief about. So I think that uh, some of those Brewer cards were pretty good. <laughs> That's awesome. All right, um, inning number four. Um, do you like rain delays as a player or not? And what do you do to pass the time? Well, I wish I could show you a picture that I've got of my broadcast partner, Stan Cotton, and I with our heads laid back sound asleep during a rain delay. But that's on the broadcast <laughs> side. But as a player, you kind of did the same thing. You know, a lot of times, especially if you weren't in the game, you know, it's much different for a pitcher, especially a starting pitcher that's not in the game, to uh, relax during that time and not worry about trying to get yourself back to a mental state of being ready to compete. Much harder on the day-to-day -day players, no question. As a reliever, it was a little bit easier than as a starting play, a pitcher because you had that time during the game when you were down anyway and not necessarily involved as much in the game. So as a starting pitcher, it was extremely difficult because you knew there was a chance they might not let you back in. You didn't know exactly how much to warm up. So it was kind of tough as a starting pitcher to get all the juices rolling again. As you guys know, when you get the adrenaline going for something, to try to capture that again shortly afterwards is really tough to do. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, no, that's a good point. All right. Um, I'm sure it's like the start of your broadcast. All week long, <laughs> you guys get yourself geeked up to do this, this podcast, and then you have to take that break in the middle, and it cuts your momentum, and you got to try to reach that fever pitch again, right? Scott, Scott and his interns have a routine, but yeah, I mean, it's definitely the same mindset, I'm sure. <laughs> uh, all right, Larry, fifth inning. Um, you talked about some of your teammates, you know, in the first half of the broadcast. Who would you describe as being your most influential teammate over the years? Uh, Mike Caldwell certainly is right up there at the, at the top. He taught me how to compete, and Bruce Suter became a very good friend in St. Louis. 
Uh, for some reason, I started hanging out with relievers quite a bit. Dennis Eckersley was a very good friend. And from those guys that were short relievers that had all the pressure at one time, I learned an awful lot from them. Jim Cott in St. Louis was a great influence, along with Gene Tennis. So I, I'd kind of list those guys as the handful that I really listened to and respected. And Sal Bando, of course, in that category. There's so many guys, a handful on every team that, you knew if there was a spot you had to go when you were in trouble and needed a little advice, you could go into their corner. Scott Sanderson, a young man that just passed away um, the yeah, other day, yeah. was a great teammate. It was We had a golf dinner for some of uh, Sanderson, Eckersley, Dick Ruthman, and myself. And uh, we were very close, and we'd play golf together. We'd eat dinner on the road together. And uh, a lot of great teammates, a lot of great memories through a lot of different baseball games. That's great. All right. Um, inning number six. Let's see here. Um, were there any um, hijinks or pranks that you or your teammates were ever a part of? That Brewers team was uh, was amazing for pranks, and some of them have been. Some of these stories have been told before, I'm sure. But uh, you know, I <laughs> I'm trying to pick which ones I want to relate and which ones I can relate. <laughs> uh, I think we're yeah. we're actually rate, we're rated uh, open on the, on this podcast. I think you can <laughs> okay. feel free to relay whatever you'd like. Actually, <laughs> well, you know, the hot foot was a real big item there for a long time, and Burt Blylevin in Cleveland was very good at. It. And I never really got it because I wasn't willing to sacrifice like they were and crawl through tobacco juice and spit and pumpkin seeds and sunflower <laughs> seeds and bubblegum spit to crawl underneath the bench just to get a guy to light his shoelace on fire. But there were teammates that did. And I remember one time in Minnesota, actually, that uh, Moose Haas decided he was going to pull a prank on Charlie Moore. And Charlie was sitting on the steps at the front of the dugout. And Moose crawled up behind him underneath the benches and was all dirty and sprayed a little alcohol on his shoes so that it would light good. <laughs> and, uh, put a match to it and all of a sudden the shoelace is on fire and the shoe starts catching on fire and Charlie just looks down at it and he doesn't really react and Moose says Charlie your shoe's on fire and, and Charlie says no Moose these are your shoes <laughs> wow. then another time in Milwaukee Bob McClure felt the need to use the restroom during batting practice so he went out next to the bullpen in center field, and uh, and he was in the facility, that little concrete building they had. And I think he was reading the newspaper, really, is what he was doing. But uh, he was in there, and somebody went out, and they tied the flagpole rope to the bathroom door. And so it came, to, <laughs> came time to come in from batting practice, and we were all standing on the field, and you could see the flagpole waving back and forth as McClure was trying to get out of the bathroom. And, it was the <laughs> and some road hijinks that, you know, shall remain unnamed that were just spectacular. Uh, it was a very loose club. George ran a very loose club. <laughs> so, so uh, no, that's, that's, that's awesome. So I guess we'll, we'll say for your next inning, the question is, who was the best practical joker that you ever played with, specifically as a player? Bly Levin was Bly Levin was very good. He seemed to always have something going, and you know you you couldn't embarrass the guy. So um, he just he was willing to do just about anything to play a prank on a guy. So if I had to pick one, it would be Bly Levin. Um, you know uh, we had one player, kid named Kevin Romberg, 
that had some kind of a superstition that he always had to touch you last. And he happened to <laughs> – it was just something he had to do. So if you shook hands with him, you know, and patted him on the back, he'd touch you back on the arm or whatever. He always had to touch you back. But one time in Cleveland, Bert knew that he had this little fetish, and so Bert crawled underneath about four bathroom stalls just so that he could get in and tap <laughs> Ron Bert on the leg. And then he sprinted backwards. And Ron Bird never knew who it was, so he went around the locker room and he tapped every single guy in the locker room. And so we'd tap him back as he was walking away, and the poor guy was going in circles trying to figure out who was touching the ball. That's crazy. I can't make this stuff up. My next question for inning number eight is, um, what are the weirdest baseball superstitions that either you have or you have heard of? So uh, you kind of answered that, but um, I don't know if you have any yourself or if you have any others you want to share. No, I was, you know, I was pretty big on if I'd had a really good game, I wouldn't get that pair of sleeves washed. You know, that was one. Stepping on the third baseline, never stepped on the third baseline. If I had a good inning, I'd try to stay in the same place. Towards the end of my – it started out when I was going good that, you know, I'd throw a piece of equipment away if I got into a bad streak. But towards the end of my career, I got in so many bad streaks, I was running out of equipment. So I had to stop that for a while. <laughs> That's great. All right, well, we'll say ninth inning here. Um, Larry, what was your favorite Major League Baseball stadium to play in and why? Fenway Park. Uh, for some reason, I just – I loved pitching at Fenway Park. I loved everything about it. Um, you know, like I said before, I was just a, a run-of-the-mill player. But you'd get uh, miles away from Fenway and somebody would see your name and they'd say, oh, Larry Sorensen. You're six and four this year. You got a 3.6 ERA, and they would know your stats and they recognize you. And and uh, pitching in that ballpark was just spectacular. Um, I've still got dents on the wall where guys hit balls off of me, so that's pretty special. I went with a Wake Forest team back there, and they gave us a tour of the monster. And they said, "Is this wow. really where you pitched?" And I said, "Yeah." And that dent over there is where Mr. Rice hit a ball. That dent is where Mr. Yastrzemski hit a ball. And that dent is. And uh, I just, I love pitching at Fenway. And Carl Yastrzemski gets his hair cut the same place that I do down in South Florida in Boca Raton. And uh, I go in sometimes when I don't need mine cut, but I know he's going to be there just so that I can hang around because talking uh, Fenway Park stories is a lot of fun. And my son happened, my son played five years of minor league baseball for the Detroit Tigers and had an off day when he was out that way. And so they went to Fenway and he walked into the ballpark and he stopped at the top of the ramp and he called me immediately and he said, okay, now I see what you mean. Uh, that, that is, that is awesome. That is really awesome. And um, there's no shame in giving up, you know, hits of any type to call you Stremsky and Jim Rice, just for the record. <laughs> yeah. well, people always say, who are the guys that hit you the best? And, and the list is like Molitor and Young and Ripken and Rice probably more than anybody. And uh, Yaz, it was at the end of his career, I pitched Carl Yastrzemski Day in Fenway Park, and he made the last out of the game and hit a tapper back to me, and I got to tag him out for the last out of the game. And you wow. know, stuff like that is, uh, is just very special stuff. And so many great memories. Uh, Jim Rice, I was doing the radio show in Detroit, and I was leaving to take the Tigers job, and they, they somehow managed to track him down, got him on the phone by telling him he did more damage than anybody else. And he said, he came on and he said, I'm just so glad you're back in the major leagues because now I know where you're going to be when I'm going to a home run hitting contest and I can send the limousine. 
I do hope that you remind Carl Yastrzemski when you guys are at the barber shop together about uh, make, him making the last out uh, with you. Bishop. Well, we talked. We did talk about it, but only one time because I've got too much. He hit me hard too many times for me to say too much about that. <laughs> tremendous, okay. tremendous player. Fair, fair enough. But uh, I think we're going to do one inning of bonus baseball here. If you're up for it, Larry. Uh, Absolutely. We're doing well on time, so. We'll do a 10th inning question and say, so we've, we've had a couple other, you know, players on our podcast here the last few months, and um, we've always asked this question, and it's how true to form is Bull Durham to being a minor or a major leaguer? Well, all I can say is that in instructional ball in 1976 that we talked about, we got rained out of a game that changed our pitching rotation because a certain right-hander wanted to get back to Ann Arbor for homecoming. And the field, <laughs> Diablo Stadium in Tempe, Arizona, was unplayable one particular day when it was 88 degrees in October and hadn't rained for weeks because the field was too wet to play on. <laughs> and John Felsky was our manager. And former, former some players, it's Yep, some players, it's rumored, went and laid a hose around home plate and then went out for some adult beverages after that and came back later, and there were Adidas footprints all around home plate. The mud was about eight inches thick, and it just tapered off all the way up to the first baseline, but you couldn't use the batter's box. But I'm sure that you and your teammates didn't wear Adidas cleats by any chance either, right? (laughs) Well, one of us may have. It's a rite of passage for me every spring to rewatch that movie, so I had to ask. <laughs> it's it's a great movie, one of my favorites, no question about that. And being so close to Durham, I've had the chance to go down there and actually be on the field and walk around a little bit, the old field. There's a great rib place right across the street from it, by the way, if you ever get down there. And uh, it's it brings back a lot of great memories, one of my favorite movies, um, Field of Dreams. I had the chance to go out to the Field of Dreams with my son and, and uh, take as we took a mobile home trip around and got to play catch on there uh, with my son, which was, which was a great, uh, great feeling as well. That's incredible. Well, this, yeah, this I'm kind of a baseball moment. park nut, to tell you the truth. And, and my current wife is a, baseball park nut, is a baseball nut as well. And so when she would be traveling for her job, I remember one occasion she was in Des Moines, and I was in Winston-Salem, and called her. I called her up, and I said, well, I'm sitting at a ballpark. And she said, well, so am I. And she was at the ballpark in Des Moines. Outside, they weren't playing. She just went to take pictures of it. So baseball gets in your blood, and then, you know, the old saying that at the end it turns out that you didn't catch the game. The game caught you. <laughs> you're, you're right about that, and uh, you lucked out in your, in your marriage as well, it sounds like. That's great. <laughs> oh, she keeps score for me at the games. The first time we went, I was doing the Winston-Salem Dash games on TV, and, the, and so I went on a Thursday night to take her, you know, and kind of try to impress her a little bit. Took her up to, was going to take her up to dinner in the buffet and everything else and meet some players, and we walked in, and she said, do they sell programs here? And I said, why? And she said, well, I like to keep score when I go to the games. And I said, well, will you marry me? <laughs> I, I, I think that would be my exact line as well. That's, that's, that's amazing. Yeah. <laughs> that's, well, 
this is this has been a, a great hour podcast with you, Larry, and, and we really appreciate you coming on. And I know that our fans are, are going to be very excited and appreciative of hearing from you for, uh, for for all these great stories that you've shared. Well, I love Milwaukee, and uh, you know it was a real growing time for me and career-wise. It was very special. We had an awful lot of fun. We won an awful lot of baseball games. And when people ask me, you know, about the special times, I say that bringing the state back to love baseball and rejuvenating it uh, after the seven years where they really struggled, watching the whole state get in so involved for those years that I was there was really special. And I was very proud to be a part of that with a lot of other terrific teammates. Yeah, absolutely. And, and actually, really quickly on that note, one of our uh, hosts here today is a guest, uh, Chris. You are uh, in the process of publishing a book. Do you want to give a plug for your book here really quick before we uh, sign off on our show? Oh, sure. Um, Building the Brewers, Blood uh, Sea League, and the Return of Major League Baseball to Milwaukee. And, you know, and, and Larry, for your information, it, it, it does end right at that pivot point. So it goes through 77 and ends about the time the, the team steps on the field for 78 when, you know, it does pivot and things turn around and, and you guys really take it to the next level after that. Well, I'm looking forward to reading it, Chris. I always enjoy the tweets that you send out. And I pay a lot of attention to those because they bring back such great memories, and I really appreciate that. Oh, thank you. I, I have to tell you, before we before we wrap up, you certainly made an impression on me when I was a kid. And um, we met, I was, it was, I, I don't even know what year, but it was one of the years you were at the Brewers, I think maybe 78 or 79. And you came to a, a convenience store in, in Madison and uh, my dad took me and he gave me some pitching pointers um, that <laughs> didn't work because I wasn't very good, but it, it certainly made an impression on me, you know, as a kid that, that you took the time to, to talk to me about baseball. Well, thank you. It's, it's, it's the greatest game that there is and the chance to, to mingle with the fans and, uh, and the people and listen to their stories and how much baseball means to them and how much they enjoy the game. You know, I think as players, we always have to appreciate that because we certainly appreciate uh, everything that the fans do for us. Well, that, that, that's great. And uh, I didn't know that background story, Chris. So that's, that's awesome. Um, glad, glad we found that found a way to get that on the podcast actually so that's that's great yeah, I, I, I still have the uh autographed uh photo that larry signed that i occasionally i'll, I'll post out on social media yeah that, that's i've, awesome. I've seen it on social media and it's funny how that does you guys asked me about my favorite player and al Kaline was mine and and willie horton was my sister's favorite player and we went to we always would go to lakeland and one year it ended up that i got willie horton's autograph and she got al Kaline. And we never did switch it because she did it on the glove. So I never got her glove. <laughs> <laughs> well, well, that's great. And, uh, and Chris, thank you for joining us tonight. Uh, we're all excited to, to read your book in the coming months when it's uh, officially out and in stores. And a very special thank you to Larry Sorensen for making the time for us tonight. Um, we'd like to invite all of you to follow us on Twitter at review one and continue to send your questions into us at Podcast with an S at gmail.com. So for that, uh, this is Vincent Scott with the Brewker Review. Thanks again for listening, and go Brewers. Go Brewers.